with us Wednesday evening. A service devoted to an opportunity to really pray to God, especially for some specific issues, problems plaguing our nation, the circumstances that surround many things that touch your life and mine on a very, very often basis. All of us believe, of course, so greatly in the power of prayer. Let us, in fact, approach God very directly Wednesday night. We'll use some songs, some opportunities in prayer. So please be with us if at all you can. It really has the opportunity to be a very compelling, a very moving, and a very telling period of time Wednesday night. We began a series of lessons last Sunday evening. It had to do with the making of the Bible. And as I mentioned then, this was in part prompted by some comments that were made at the, the men's lectureship in Murfreesboro back in the early part of August. In fact, on that occasion, there was a very brief presentation, but it occurred to me that much, much more might well could be said and perhaps would be a very meaningful series of, of lessons. And so tonight will be installment two in that series. Last week, we basically highlighted the greatness of the Word of God and the fact that what is being handled is by no means a minor matter. It is by no means trivial or simple, but rather it's profound and must be handled with the greatest of care. Surely in light of all of that, these comments are simply a brief reminder of what we saw then. We learned the Word of God to be inspired last Sunday night. We reminded ourselves of that. We also studied about the fact it is truthful. It's absolutely without error. Also, it's authoritative. That means that what it says is the way that God would have it to be. And it doesn't matter what the human family may think otherwise about it. It carries all the authority of heaven. Finally, you and I noticed it is to be loved. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, verse 97. As it is with that that we close that lesson by briefly noting a very few specifics. And it is with that that we'll pick up our study tonight. The making of the Bible. These opening remarks, at least those on this next slide, will bring us to at least think of the following thing. What you are holding in your lap or what you may have access to on your uh, technological device or what you may have committed to memory is truly something that is absolutely astounding. Consider this with me. In the earliest of times, the human family did not have God's Word written down. All they had was the things that God had delivered to a selected few, and they in turn were directed by God to share it with everybody else. We, you and I often call that the patriarchal age. The patriarchs were the ones to whom God gave the explicit commandments, and they were the ones responsible for sharing it with the others. For example, wasn't it true that God told Adam in Genesis 2 verse 16, God told Adam directly, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree in the midst of the garden thou shalt not eat, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now Adam didn't read that in a book. He didn't read that in any other means. In fact, God directly told him that. A few chapters later in Genesis chapter 6, God told Noah this, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Three stories shalt thou make it. Thou shalt pitch it within and, out, within and without with pitch. You and I know well. God told him that. Noah didn't read that in any kind of a book. Furthermore, in Genesis chapter 12, 
God told Abram this, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred unto a place which I shall show thee. God told him that. He did not read it in a book. There was no, quote, Bible per se, for which and to which he could turn for instruction. We begin to then see, interestingly, in that age of time, there was no written Bible. All that they had was those explicit statements that God gave to the patriarchs of the families, and they in turn delivered it, commanded it, if you please, to the other members of the families. In Genesis 18, verse 19, that statement was made about Abraham. God expressly said, I know that he shall command his children and his family after him. Abraham had that responsibility. As you furthermore notice, one could also mention Isaac. In Genesis 26, verses 2 and following, God specifically addressed Isaac and gave him some statements and commandments. In Genesis 32, God addressed Jacob and gave him some commandments. By now we already see the idea. It was a very different thing at that time, wasn't it? You and I are so used to having this, but they didn't have it. They rather had God's instructions by another mechanism, by a different means. No wonder then these particular comments are very much in order. You and I might note with care that the fact that God's Word at that time was not written down does not mean that humans didn't know how to write. Already the ability to write had been developed and invented, if you please. Many examples of ancient writing have been unearthed. Those in ancient Egypt perhaps rise to the top of the consideration. Hieroglyphics are known back to at least 3500 B.C. The fact is humans knew how to write in the days of Abraham. They knew how to write in the days of Noah. But God had chosen not yet to have His Word recorded that way. That was to wait for a different time. It was to wait for a different sequence in the development of the human family. You'll notice furthermore, as you, you and I open the Word of God, we find the very first occurrence anywhere in it of writing is not until Exodus, the 17th chapter. In Exodus 17, verse 14, near the close of that chapter, God made an interesting commandment to Moses at that time, the children of Israel were engaged in battle with Amalek, and God told Moses to write down the record of that battle. Moses did it. That already tells us Moses knew how to write. He already was acquainted with the ability to write. That isn't all. You'll notice many more examples of Moses writing something. This was only the first of many. I would call to your attention Exodus 24, verse number 4, in which on that occasion, after the law was given on Mount Sinai, one more time Moses wrote down those things as a record for the children of Israel. Later on in Exodus, or rather Numbers 33, 2, Moses again is said to have written down a record of all the journeyings of the children of Israel, the places where they camped and how long they stayed. Beyond them, we come to Deuteronomy 32.1. Moses even wrote down a song. You and I live close to Nashville, known as Music City, USA, sometimes even Music City around the world. And yet Moses wrote a song a long time ago. Deuteronomy 32 records the song that Moses wrote. An interesting reflection of God's faithfulness and the divinity of His providence. Beyond all of that, 
we come to Joshua 8.31, where even Joshua made reference to the writings of Moses. He became the recognized one who penned that law of Moses. And as later generations and later inspired individuals would look upon it, they appreciated the greatness of what Moses wrote. You'll notice later in Judges 3 verse 4, in that occasion, one more time, reference to the inspired writings of Moses. Maybe having said all of that, it's fair to appreciate that Moses is a critical figure in the opening part of the Word of God for having written it down for us. Notice in particular what Jesus said in Luke 24:44, as well as John 7, 19. Jesus expressly said that Moses wrote down that which would you, would, you and I would call the first five books of the Bible. I realize that many men have often questioned Moses' authorship of those books, but Jesus never questioned it. Jesus said that Moses wrote them, and that should be enough. You and I should appreciate that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were penned by the man named Moses. It is to be observed, of course, that there were others besides Moses who were privileged to write things in relation to the things of God. In Joshua 24, verse 26, Joshua wrote down some things shortly before his death and shared it with the children of Israel, encouraging them and directing them to understand their responsibility to be faithful. Beyond that, in 1 Samuel 10, 25, Samuel is said to have written down some things in relation to the words of God. Maybe all of that is just a reminder. The time finally did come that God saw fit to have His Word recorded and recorded in a way to where the human family could read it and look upon it and appreciate it not merely by oral tradition. That was a very important thing, wasn't it? As you come to the bottom of that slide, may I say that what a blessing it is to have that Bible. Think of where you and I would be today without it. How would anybody know how to be a Christian without it? How would anybody know how to worship God correctly without it? How would anybody have correct information about death and heaven without it? There isn't a person on earth that would know for sure what would be involved in pleasing God without it. Oh, how thankful we should be for it. That's one of the things that we're going to pray in thanksgiving to God about Wednesday, the understanding of just how sweet a blessing it is to have the Bible. But as we move from that slide to the next one, this consideration of writing brings us to the following. What was it written on? It's one thing to say that God finally allowed someone to write down this which was His Word, but what did they write it on? You and I today have paper. We have such access and such easy convenience to have access to paper. What did they use? I'd submit that there are a number of references in the Bible, and we're going to look at a, a several of them, that give us some hints about what they used to record and to write the blessed Word of God. As you and I come to the first, maybe it goes without saying that stone was one of the first substances on which words of God were written. I'm sure all of us have already raced in our consideration to the scene in the Old Testament that captures our attention in regard to that. I've asked you to notice at Exodus 31, 18, the very finger of God wrote on tables of stone what you and I call the Ten Commandments. 
Here was God's Word recorded, but what was it recorded on? It was a table of stone. That certainly has a permanency to it, doesn't it? That certainly has a degree of continuance to it, and yet on that particular surface, the finger of God wrote the commandments. You and I remember Moses broke that particular set of tablets, and yet later on in Exodus 34, God told him to again bring a set of tables of stone, and one more time those commandments were written on it. Stone was utilized as the surface upon which some of God's laws were recorded. Those were not the only times, however. In Deuteronomy 27, verses 2 and following, on that occasion a reference is made to stones on which were written the things of God. Later in the book of Joshua, we notice in Joshua 8, verses 30 and following, as the children of Israel had now reached the point of crossing into the promised land, on that occasion God told them, erect some stones and write the law on it so that it could be a constant reminder of the law of God. That was a great idea, wasn't it? And it was God's idea. As you think about writing on stone, that isn't the only substance, however, that we find mentioned in the Old Testament as a surface on which the Word of God was written. As you turn to Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 1, you find reference to a clay tablet. I might suggest, I believe we can imagine how that likely worked. A clay tablet, when it was wet, could easily be marked in with letters or pictures or writing. But then when that clay hardened, whatever had been written in it would now, of course, have a permanency to it. In Ezekiel 4 verse 1, a tile is referenced and God told Ezekiel to make some drawings on that tile. And those drawings, of course, carried a powerful message of destruction in light of Jerusalem and that which, of course, had already befallen them and was yet to come. A clay tablet. Maybe in light of that, it challenges us to think about another one. There were occasions when it would seem that wood was used as a surface on which the Word of God was written. By wood, I simply have reference to this. You and I perhaps have easily known it. You can scratch letters or pictures in a piece of wood. Look at references like these. In Isaiah 30 verse 8, as well as Habakkuk chapter 2, Reference is made to what appears to be a surface that involved wood. Now, the actual Hebrew word that's translated in those cases is a word that means book or missive or writing. And it would seem, again, that it may well have been a wooden tablet or at least a surface that was wooden on which writing was to be made. Especially of significance, it seems, is the passage in Habakkuk. Write the vision, God told Habakkuk. Make it plain that those who read it may run. Habakkuk was to write with such clearness, plainness, with such gravity and urgency that the people who would read it would immediately leap into action in regard to the warning that had been issued. As you think about all of them, we still seemingly encounter a host of others and there are two that occupy the major portions of what remains. Animal skins. You'll notice that these appear to have been very important in the Old Testament era. You probably can imagine that stone would be rather heavy and wouldn't very be very easily portable. The other things like wood and clay, they would also be somewhat limited in, in the opportunities made available by them. But consider for a moment an animal skin. 
if you took that skin and shaved it and scraped it, you then by some means would be able to impart letters or pictures or at least other information to it, and a skin could hold quite a bit. You'd be able to write quite a bit on that. Speaking of these skins, I'd suggest to you that these occupy an interesting importance when we look at one word that the Apostle Paul used. Now, I've used two verses to ask you to consider something. The first in Jeremiah 36. There we find lay in the book of Jeremiah a very telling scene in which a particular writing was brought before a King Jehoiakim. You may remember what Jehoiakim did to it. He didn't like it a little bit. As, the, as Baruch read the particular writing, of Jeremiah had written it, but Jeremiah at that time was unable to come because he was basically under arrest. But here was Baruch who brought the writing before the king and started to read it, and Jehoiakim did not like it at all. He took out his penknife and cut it to shreds, thinking he could do away with the Word of God. Notice by the fact that he was able to cut it, that clearly wasn't stone and it appears not to have been clay and certainly it wasn't wood. That appears to have been an instance on which writing had been done by Jeremiah and it was on a skin of some kind. As that was recorded, notice the wording that Paul uses. In the very last chapter of which we have any record that he ever wrote, 2 Timothy 4.13, he made this statement as he wrote to Timothy Winter was coming on, and he wanted very much to have the cloak that had been left with Carpus. But as he closed the verse, he said, Bring the books and the parchment. Bring the book and the parchment. That word parchment is the word membranous, and it reminds you and me of the word membrane. Our students in school learn about all kinds of membranes and cells and other things, but this is the word that means membrane. This was a particular surface on which writing very important to Paul had been written. Most likely that was an animal skin on which the Old Testament Scriptures had been written. Some portion of the Old Testament Scriptures, Paul wanted it so he could study it and read it and be edified by it. He wanted the Scriptures. Maybe it is with that in mind we then notice if a skin of a calf was used... You and I would likely call that leather or something like it. It was called vellum, V-E-L-L-U-M, and that was much more expensive. So typically only the most prized of writing was written on vellum. Now it is with that in mind that we consider the following. Arguably another exceedingly important substance on which writing took place in relation to the Word of God was papyrus. And you may notice the way that's spelled at the top, P-A-P-Y-R-U-S, papyrus. Perhaps you've heard of a term either like that or at least associated with it. Let's talk for a moment about papyrus. This came to be the most significant substance on which the writing of God took place. We've studied about wood and stone and tablets that were of clay and things like that, but let's speak for a moment about papyrus. You probably already noticed it seems a little bit like paper, at least as you think about the wording of it. And let's see, in fact, if that maybe to some extent didn't come to be the case. I thought we might begin by looking at some pictures. This is a papyrus plant. 
it grew naturally in the ancient era along the Nile River in Egypt. And therefore, the human family learned to utilize the pith out of the stalk of the papyrus plant and to use it very profitably. By that, I mean as follows. You could extract the pith of that plant. You basically could then glue it together in narrow strips. And as you did, you could make what would look like a piece of paper. It was white in color. It was, when it was a little bit dampened, it was easily pliable. And again, you could basically glue the strips together and make pieces of paper. And what they typically would do is they would make, of course, strips in one direction and then they would crisscross the one above it. So it was basically a double layer of papyrus. And it would, of course, provide itself the ability to have things written upon it. The ancients knew very well about things that you and I would call something like ink. The Phoenicians had known for a long time how to dye garments. So needless to say, one could put things of pictures and writing on these pieces of papyrus. You'll notice on this particular slide, I have showed at the top two pictures of that papyrus plant. It grew not only in Egypt, but there were isolated occurrences of it also in other places of the Middle East. At the bottom left, you'll notice a piece of papyrus that had been now made into a sheet. The crisscross layers, if you look closely, are easily seen. And at the bottom right, you see writing now on one of these papyrus pieces. As you think about that utility of papyrus, let's go back to that previous slide and notice a few other details if we might. The first half or so of that slide has basically developed some of the thoughts I just shared, but you might notice some of the distances or at least some of the amounts that are listed. Those particular slides of papyrus, you could, of course, take the sheets that had been made and glue them together into long rolls, and usually no more than 30 to 35 feet was the length of one of those rolls. By this point, you can well appreciate about 10 inches in its width, but think about a length of some 30 to 35 feet. By now, you probably imagine something more like a scroll. Thus, let's go forward two slides this time. At the top left, those sheets of papyrus then that you and I had noted earlier could then be arranged in such a fashion with rollers on each end, and thus a scroll could thus be formed. Can you imagine reading the Word of God on something like that? As you unroll it from one side, roll it onto the other, you find the passage of interest to you, and it's on a sheet 30 or 35 feet in length. How convenient do you and I have the Bible in a form like this? That would be much more unwieldy, much more challenging to expressly find one's desired location. But yet, as you look at those scrolls, you'll notice at the bottom left is a picture of an archaeological discovery in which an ancient scroll had been found. It's now in the British Museum, closely guarded under glass, I might add, and you see a Jewish rabbi looking at it. At the bottom right, over to the right, I should say, you'll notice a particular clay jar that was used to protect those scrolls. Sometimes those jars were called an amphora. As the scrolls were placed in them, what a closely guarded thing that they were. As we go back to that previous slide again, you'll notice at the very bottom, 
it seems to me something intriguing about these scrolls to which you and I have just referred. Notice particularly, in Greek, the name of one of those long scrolls was Biblos, B-I-B-L-O-S. In particular, I might I ask you to note the plural of that word, Biblia. Significant it is, that word means the books. And it seems to me very interesting that it is that word that has come to describe the book in your hand. The Biblia, the Bible. The writings, this is the writings from God. Long ago regarded in a very particular and very respected and very, very amazing fashion. The Biblios, or I should say the Biblos, the Biblia. One more thing on that slide. If you look with some care at the language in which that ancient writing took place, you'll find that it didn't have punctuation marks. And furthermore, there was very little, if any, spacing between the letters. That would make it all the more challenging, don't you suppose, in order to carefully find that which one sought. As we go forward from there, We've looked one by one at these pictures of those papyrus plants and the sheets made from them. And we've also looked at that scroll. Let's go on to the next idea. A few additional comments about this writing of the Word of God. At the very top, you'll notice there finally did come a time when the writing on that papyrus was very naturally arranged. Might I ask you to notice that typically... The writing was on one side of that scroll. Very rarely, if there was enough to be written, or if there was insufficient amount in a given scroll, the author might write it on both front and back. That does highlight something about Revelation chapters 4 and 5, doesn't it? For there, as the Lord Jesus Christ took the scroll or the roll from the right hand of the Master on the throne, it is said that it had writing on both sides of it. Doesn't that highlight the fullness then of what it was that was revealed on that roll? It was the absolute exhaustive nature of the will of God. There is no more. Finally, you'll notice that humankind ultimately developed the capability not of arranging those papyrus sheets and long scrolls, but more like a book-like structure called a codex. That would be close to what you and I would recognize today, a binding with sheets arranged in a way that one could much more readily move through the document and locate a particular point of interest. Maybe it is with regard to all of that that you and I can comment about how great it was to have the Word of God written in a way to which it could be consulted, turned back to time and again to see exactly what God said. Isn't that what Daniel did in Daniel 9, verses 1 and following? He was able to look carefully at what had been written from the days of Jeremiah and before. And so he knew exactly how long the captivity was to last. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? As you and I have looked at all of these features, the Word of God written down, and now we have some idea of what it was written on. Let's look even further if we might. Here's two more pictures. These are pictures of portions of the Word of God. You would again notice at the top, lots of letters, but there's no punctuation, nor is there any spaces between those letters. In many cases, Hebrew was written that way. 
that would be very different for you and me. In fact, if we turned in a paper like that to an English teacher, he or she would quickly turn back an F. You and I know we're supposed to use correct punctuation and correct spacing between the letters and even spacing between the words. It wasn't so then. You'll notice at the bottom a picture then of these particular columns on which was written this which was the Word of God. One would naturally read down a full column then go to the top and read down the next one. You and I typically read left to right on a sheet of paper. They read top to bottom. Very different for you and me, isn't it? Those languages that then are read in a fashion like that sometimes challenge us to appreciate that it is in those ancient languages that God, in fact, resorted to the first writing of His Word. Moving on to the next idea. Maybe, maybe that does challenge us to come to the last segment of the lesson tonight and to think at least in a passing moment about the languages in which this Word of God was originally written. We'll have much more to say about these languages as our series progresses, but at least for now. What about the initial language? First, what about the Old Testament? Without a doubt, by far the major language utilized in the writing of the Old Testament was Hebrew. I say mostly. It wasn't all written in Hebrew, but by far, almost all of it was. Very, very little was written in anything else. That then helps us appreciate that God selected the Hebrew language to be that language in which the Old Testament Scriptures primarily were recorded. A few details perhaps about that language might ask us to notice. How do we know that and how is it referenced in the Word of God? I find it intriguing in Nehemiah 13.24. At that juncture of the Old Testament, the Hebrew language is called the Jew's tongue. It was recognized that way. It's the language that Jews spoke. It's the language that the ancient Hebrews conversed and wrote. That's the language that God selected for the majority of the Old Testament Scriptures. As you speak about that Hebrew, you'll notice in Revelation 16, 16, the explicit word there is found in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. You and I remember other brief references to the word Hebrew, but those are just a few reminding us of its place in the writing of the Old Testament Word of God. Beyond the notion of that, it's a bit interesting that in Isaiah 19, 18, it's called the language of Canaan. Something very special. That was the language of Canaan. Literally, it's called the lip of Canaan. I would ask you to notice then, as you and I consider that language, it's quite different now from English. There are 26 letters in our English alphabet. There's only 22 in the Hebrew. There were certain letters, certain kinds of sounds in English they didn't have. There's one interesting passage in Judges where, in fact, we encounter that. Remember the riddle? There was a particular reference to a word that certain people couldn't pronounce because it involved a Hebrew sound. As you and I study Hebrew, rather Judges chapters 8 and 9, that rises to our appreciation that it was based on thoughts of Hebrew. Uh, those 22 letters, if you are reading in the 119th Psalm, you'll notice they all occur there. That's an acrostic chapter. You notice that it has 176 verses in that chapter. 
and it's grouped in sections of eight. You'll notice that the first eight verses, the first word of the verse, all begins with the first letter in Hebrew. The second set of eight verses begins with the second letter in Hebrew and all the way through that chapter. It is interesting then that we see a reappearance of one element in Hebrew as we look then at that ancient chapter. And also there's a part in Lamentations that, that is done exactly the same way. You might notice as we then think about Hebrew, we've already commented that there were some sections of the Old Testament that were written in something besides Hebrew. I would call to your attention, it was Aramaic. Aramaic. Now that really was a cousin language, if I might call it that, to Hebrew. But nonetheless, it was very different. As you think about it, I've tried to list for you those passages that are in Aramaic. First, there's one word in Genesis that's in Aramaic. It's in Genesis 31, verse 47. It was that discussion on that occasion when Laban and Jacob were having discussion, and they gave a certain name to the, lo to the place where they were having discussion. Jacob called it one name. Laban called it another one. Jacob gave it a Hebrew name. Laban gave it an Aramaic name. That's the one place in the book of Genesis where we encounter an Aramaic term. Interestingly enough, there is one verse in the book of Jeremiah that's in Aramaic. Jeremiah 10, verse 11. That one verse is written in that language, interestingly. However, the major sections of Aramaic come in Daniel and in Ezra. As you read through the book of Daniel, you and I might in English not be able to easily note the transition, but if you're reading through and looking at it in Hebrew, it, come, it becomes very different. When you arrive at Daniel 2, verses 4 and following, suddenly now it's in Aramaic, whereas before it was in Hebrew. That continues all the way to chapter 7, verse 28. Later in Ezra, chapter 4, verse 8, all the way to chapter 6, verse 18, all that's in Aramaic. Also, Ezra 7, verses 12 to 26 is all in Aramaic. One has to then appreciate that God selected Aramaic for those sections, no doubt in part because of the place that God's people found themselves then. Isn't it interesting? There's also references to Aramaic in the New Testament, albeit not many, but there are some. Consider these gospel account examples. In Mark 5, verse number 41, as Mark penned that book of Mark, written to the Romans, we find something interesting. He encountered a term and then he defined it. Why might that be? Didn't they know what the meaning of the word was? The answer is no, because the term's in Aramaic. And the Romans didn't understand Aramaic. And so Mark defined it for them. That happened again in Mark 7, 34, where there a man that was both mute and unable, of course, to speak, we find, again, the word was defined because it's in Aramaic. Another example in Matthew 27, 46, that's probably a very familiar one to you and me. On the cross, Jesus spoke Aramaic. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That's Aramaic. It means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? On the cross, our Savior uttered Aramaic. Maybe one final example in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. That phrase to which the Corinthians were directed... You remember Paul gave them instruction about this particular phrase that said, Anathema, Maranatha. That's Aramaic. 
is you and I think about the appearance of these Aramaic words and expressions in the Bible. Perhaps it's fair to say that Aramaic was an exceedingly common spoken language in the days of Jesus. It would appear Jesus spoke Aramaic rather regularly. It would appear the apostles spoke Aramaic in their daily conversation. Now, that does have her biggest to think of this. Though they spoke Aramaic, the language that was most commonly written was Greek, and hence the Greek New Testament. The very bottom, the New Testament was written in Greek. When you and I read these 27 New Testament books from Matthew all the way to Revelation, we see God's Word penned in that language that had become universal basically by the time it was Greek. And a few comments, of course, are these. Although most would likely have spoken Aramaic, they wrote Greek. As you and I think about the Greek New Testament, probably none of us read Greek. We have translations to assist us whereby it was translated from Greek into English. But think about at least these brief comments. Greek, and it's a very interesting thing to note, not all ancient Greek was the same. There was what was recognized as classical Greek, and then there was this different Greek. And it was easily understood by anybody that looked at the Greek text that it was not classical Greek. It didn't read like Homer, and it didn't read like the various famous ancient poems that were written in Greek. The reason is the God of heaven selected a different Greek. It's called Koine Greek. It was the Greek of the common man. It wasn't a high, sophisticated, intellectual kind of Greek. It was common Greek that everybody could understand. And that's the Greek that God chose. That's the Greek the Holy Spirit directed His Word to be written in. Koine Greek. 24 letters of the Greek alphabet. And as I mentioned there, you and I notice a few of those letters are mentioned in the New Testament. Jesus said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, Revelation 1 verse 8. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet and Omega is the last one, letters 1 and 24. Isn't that great? Jesus is everything from first to last and everything in between, the Alpha and the Omega. Maybe as we've at least touched a little bit about the features of the languages, it brings us to the final part of our lesson tonight. What a blessing it is to have the Word of God written down. Aren't we thankful? We don't have to rely upon somebody else's memory to tell us what the Bible is. We have our own copy. We have it as it was pre presented by God in the ancient languages and has been translated for you and for me. As we continue our study in these series, we'll look at some more features of what it is that is the Word of God today. How was it translated and who did it? Can we believe their translations? That's a great question and we'll look at that as our series proceeds. Tonight, as you and I think about having the Word of God at our fingertips the way we do, might we ask, it's one thing to have it, but the greatest thing of all is to obey it. Have you and have I obeyed it? Are we faithful to its proclamations? Jesus said in John 6 verse 63, The words that I say unto thee, they are spirit and they are life. That word does bring life, but it brings life to those that obey it. Tonight there might be someone in the audience who would wish to make a public response to the invitation of the gospel. If we could help you do that, we'd be honored and happy to do it. 
The Word of God demands as an alien sinner that you must believe in Jesus and repent of your sins and confess His name as a Son of God to be baptized. And if we could help you with that tonight, don't delay. If, however, you've become a Christian but you haven't been faithful and you'd like to ask for the prayers of those around you to God on your behalf, please let us know. We'd be honored to pray to God for you. If we could help you tonight in either of these ways, why don't you come while together we stand and while we sing?